Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, great to be with you again. I was saying to the to the first gathering that the last time I was here, I came and spoke during the COVID shutdown time, and so the last time I was here on stage, this place was essentially empty. So it's nice to have people back. Um, those were crazy times, and and good to be kind of working in your study of the Book of Acts. I taught through the Book of Acts a number of years ago. It, Felt like we spent about eight years going through it. It's a long book, um, but it's uh, a wonderful one. Love Crossridge very much. Uh, big fans of this ministry. Lee is a good friend of mine. He's actually serving on our leadership team during this season of starting a new thing before we raise up elders. And so uh, talked to Lee quite a bit, actually Zooming with him uh, on Friday, as a matter of fact. So great to be with you. Love this ministry. I know you get good teaching here every week. And so it's an honor for me to be able to hang out and, and join you in this series. So we're in the book of Acts chapter six. We're looking at verses eight to 15 today. Uh, let me pray. I know Annie just prayed. Let me pray as we enter this time together as well. Uh, Father, Uh, Guide our thoughts, I pray. Uh, Guide our hearts, uh, I pray. Guide my words uh, as I teach yours. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were here last week, you were introduced to a a man named Stephen. Spoiler alert, he's going to be dead next week, all right? So that's what's (laughs) taking place. I know that sounds shocking, but it's important to a story. Um, his death. It's actually important to our story too. Uh, If you were here last week, you'll uh, remember that he was introduced in verses 3 and 6 as as being a man full of faith and wisdom and the Spirit. Faith, wisdom, and the Spirit, full of those things. Hard to find that man today, by the way. Uh, Men like that don't fall off trees. Uh, in a church of thousands of others, which the Jerusalem church was at this point of time, early history of the church, remember on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the church, and then every day almost, it seems, they were growing in number. And so thousands of people in this church that made up the church in Jerusalem, he was chosen from among thousands, along with six others, to head up the church's first ministry program, the feeding of Hellenized widows. And it seems that he was chosen first because his name shows up in the list first, which I think tells us that he was thought of well. His reputation in the church was great. In fact, even though Stephen comes and goes rather quickly in the history of the church, I think it's safe to say that he's one of the greatest examples in the history of the church. Uh, Chapter 8, actually, excuse me, chapter 6, actually begins a transition in the book of Acts. Uh, first five chapters in the book of Acts, really the focus is on Peter and his leadership. Chapter 8, really, chapter 9, turns the attention and our focus on Paul. Paul shows up, Saul, Paul shows up, but Stephen serves as sort of a bridge between the two. Uh, and I think it's a really important bridge. I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's this nice connecting point between the ministry of Peter, which was essentially to Jewish people, Paul, he was the apostles to, apostle to the Gentiles. And then you have this individual named Stephen, whose ministry was to Hellenized, Greek-speaking Jewish people, essentially. So he serves as a nice bridge between the two ministries. Our passage, and this is what we're going to do, just to give you kind of a 
kind of a feel for the next few minutes together. By the way, by the way, I need to say this. I forgot. All right, stop. This isn't my time. This is a, a separate point. Um, I have to do a wedding today right after this. And so when I finish preaching, I'm going to unclip. I'm going to get in my car and drive away. So if I leave during the gathering, don't think, boy, that guy is very rude. I have to go back, get my monkey suit on and marry a couple of people. And so that's what I'm doing. But what we're going to spend our time doing before that happens is I'm going to take you through verse by verse through our text, uh, making some points along the way, and then I'm going to leave you with what I'm calling three implications, sort of three takeaways that are important. So if you kind of like to have a sense of how does this work today, that's what we're going to do. So our passage begins in verse 8, Luke the writer writes, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Just stop there. So let's do the math. If you like doing math, what do we have with Stephen? Well, Stephen was full of faith, plus. He was full of wisdom, plus. He was full of grace, plus. He was full of power, plus. He was full of the Holy Spirit. Wow. He is is being described in ways that up until this point, only the apostles were described as. That's number one. And number two, he's doing things that only the apostles did up to this point in the book of Acts, namely signs and wonders. Now, what does it mean to be full of grace? Sounds nice. What does it mean to be full of grace? Well, it doesn't mean what the world says it means. Because when we think about being full of grace today, we think of regalness and beauty and nobility and, and decorum. We think of princesses, princesses, how do you say that? Princesses, yeah, princesses, right, in gowns, walking down staircases, right, beautiful, again, regal, noble. That's how the world defines it, right? We say that person is full of grace. They're so graceful. But that's not how it's being used here. Here it's being used as a description of God's favor, of God's blessing, of God's success. In other words, God was on Stephen's life. He had filled him with grace. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, the author of Hebrews writes, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think it was this gracious help that enabled Stephen to stand firm in the face of opposition. We'll see that next week. We'll see that this week as well. Even with the threat of death, he stood firm. But I also believe this fullness of grace led to a graciousness towards others. I think he would have needed this grace in his ministry to the Hellenized widows and also Later, while being killed, he cried out, Lord, do not hold this against them. What grace. What about being full of power? Well, the way power is being used here in context, it seems that it's most connected to the signs and wonders that he was performing in front of the people. But as you will see next week as well, Stephen demonstrates a power of conviction and courage and boldness in the face of opposition that is otherworldly. And all of this coming by way of the Holy Spirit. Take a look at verse 9. It goes on to say, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, 
as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. Stop there. So what's going on? Well, it seems that we have a synagogue in Jerusalem, and historians, some suggest there were as many as 480 synagogues in Jerusalem at this point of time. But there is a synagogue in Jerusalem made up of slaves, former slaves, or their ancestors. And they called this synagogue the synagogue of freedmen. History tells us that many Jewish people were taken into captivity under Pompey in about 60 B.C., and eventually they were given their release, amnesty. And so what we have, a, have here is we have this group made up of individuals from different parts of the world, places like northern, uh, northern Africa, uh, Cyrene and Alexandria. Uh, if you remember the account of the crucifixion of Jesus when he stumbled, an individual helped him carry the cross. Simon of Cyrene, a northern African individual. Asia. This is a province within Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, and Cilicia. Cilicia is the province where Paul's hometown was, Tarsus. And so there's a good chance that this synagogue being described here was a synagogue that Paul attended, perhaps. We do know that he's on the scene here, as you will see next week as well. Luke writes that this group rose up and they disputed with Stephen which means that they were fired up. They're angry, and they are angry because of what Stephen was teaching, and so they entered this heated debate with him. Uh, The location of this at this point in our account is probably one of the courts in, in the temple. I wonder if Paul was there throwing questions at him. Again, we know that he was there. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so they all came to Jesus, right? They all came to faith in Jesus, right? Because that's all it takes. As long as you answer everybody's questions, objections, that's all it takes. People will fall to their knees, repent, and come to Jesus. Well, we know that's not the case, but it's good to be reminded of it. You see, there's a difference between people coming with sincere questions and those simply using questions as a barrier to believe. Have you found that? Conversations with people that you just know in your heart of hearts. I I can answer every question this person is posing to me, and I I know they're not going to come to faith in Christ. They're using the questions as an excuse to to not believe. What do we need to know about the Christian faith? Well, the Christian faith is a faith of reason. It's a faith of, it's a faith of history. It's a, it's a faith of certainty. I can tell you with great conviction that every question that has been ever raised about the Christian faith has been answered in volume by the greatest of minds with overwhelming peer review. The Christian faith has nothing to be embarrassed of in the world of academia, for example. So why doesn't everyone believe? Well, because we don't only live in the world of academia. And nor do do the academics. We are all people of faith. 
We just place our faith on different things. And sometimes we choose not to believe, not because there isn't evidence to the contrary, but because to believe means the loss of something else. Something we can't bear the thought of losing. I think that's what's going on here. And this will become clearer as we go. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Interesting that it comes in that order, order Moses first and then God. I'm not sure if we're supposed to read into that or not. Um, if you're reminded here as you read this, if you're reminded of that kangaroo court that Jesus stood in, in the midst of, leading to the death of Jesus, then you're thinking, right. We're going to see a lot of things that remind us of Jesus. Uh, but let me remind you of what takes place in that, in that scene in Matthew 26. We read, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said... I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, when you read, going back to our text in verse 11, when you read of Moses there, think law of Moses. Moses is connected, sometimes just referred to as the books of Moses or simply Moses. He is Moses connected to the law given to him on Mount Sinai. So think law of Moses, hear them talking about that. What they mean exactly about what Stephen was saying about the law of Moses will become clear as we move ahead as well. But before moving on, do you see the irony of all of this right here? The irony of what's taking place? They secretly instigated men who lied or twisted what Stephen had said about the law and God. Do you know what's in the law? You shall not bear false witness. I mean, it makes the top 10. It's a really important one. And yet they were willing to brazenly break it in their opposition to Stephen. They break the law of Moses while they accuse Stephen of blaspheming the law of Moses. I mean, you could... Cut the hypocrisy here with a butter knife. Uh, when I was considering this, thinking about this this week, I was sitting in a, a, a Tim Hortons, I'm kind of going over my notes, thinking through this part of the text. And, and this is what I wrote, wrote about it. Uh, a religious zealousness, willing to break the commands of the religion it's defending, is not a religion worth defending and being zealous for. If it doesn't stand up to scrutiny and objections and questions, it's not worth being zealous for and and defending. But that's exactly what's going on here, which brings us to verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, that's Stephen, and they seized him and brought him before the council. Now, what people? Luke writes that they stirred up the people. Well, the answer is those people mentioned in verse 8 that Stephen was performing signs and wonders in front of. 
But now, based on the false accusations, they are stirred up, fired up. And again, we are reminded of Jesus, are we not? Where the shouts of Hosanna by the people on Sunday were quickly replaced with shouts of crucify him on Friday. Crowds are rarely a good thing in the Bible. I was uh, reading a commentator on this uh, part of our text this week who wrote that there is a fine line between hearing the gospel and hating the gospel. And those that turn from the gospel often turn violent, very antagonistic. I think there's there's truth to that. I've seen it in my own life. Perhaps you've seen it too. Those who have walked away from faith, faith, don't become indifferent. In fact, very, like I said, antagonistic, perhaps even violent. That's what's going on here. They went from hearing, they went from seeing to being stirred up. And so they seize Stephen, not a term of gentleness. That word seize is used in the Gospels to talk about demons that seize control of those they possess. And they bring him before the council. What is this council? This is the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, big word, simply means seated together. It was a group of 70, 70 men plus the high priest, made up of various arms of the of the Jewish faith. It served as the administrative and the judicial council of the Jewish people. Just think Jewish Supreme Court. And once again, we are reminded of Jesus. For Jesus too was brought before the Sanhedrin in the lead up to his death. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch to say that probably most of the men that Stephen is standing in front of would have been the same men that Jesus had been standing in front of or stood in front of as well. Verses 13 and 14. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now, if you like diving deep uh, into Bible passages, then you're going to love these two verses, all right? If you just love nerding out on the Bible, right? Getting down into the weeds, we can really get into the weeds within these two verses. Let me highlight what I mean, just to give you sort of a handful of things that jump out. First off, Luke writes that the council set up false witnesses. Literally, they made stand false witnesses. Now, we don't know how they made them stand, threat, force? Did they bribe them? They weren't beyond bribing people. Did they bribe them? We, we aren't told. We just get another taste of their zealousness gone wrong. Zealousness that will stop at nothing. Second thing that we see in these two verses is we get clarity about it, what exactly they were saying back in verse 11 when they were talking about blasphemous words against God and Moses. Stephen, they say, never ceases to talk against this holy place. That's the temple and the law. That's the law of Moses. Third, we get a a taste of their hatred of Jesus. When they refer to Jesus as this Jesus of Nazareth. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. 
Nathaniel made that point. That was a common adage at the time. Um, Andy talked about how we've known each other for quite a long time now. When I first met Andy, he was living in Hope. And um, uh, we were looking, I was working at Willingdon, and, and we were looking for another worship guy. And so Ron Clark, who was the worship guy there, and I drove out to Chilliwack and, and, and met him halfway. And um, I'm not saying that nothing good comes out of Hope. Um, that's not my point. But if I refer to Andy as this Andy of hope, you probably think, I don't think Norm thinks much of Andy. I do think much of Andy. I think the world of Andy. They didn't think the world of Jesus at all. This Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't care for Jesus. That's why they refer to him this way. And now they have a follower of Jesus saying the same things as Jesus. A fourth thing that stands out, I'll give you four out of these two verses, is we get a a theological hiccup here. When they say, we have heard Stephen say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Uh, This is the crux of the text. Our text hinges on this. And I call it a theological hiccup because didn't Jesus say something like that? I mean, we heard it earlier in Matthew 26. And in John 2, we read Jesus saying to them, his opposition, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I mean, this was so commonly attributed to Jesus that at his death, people mocked him with this. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. And therefore, wouldn't it make sense that Stephen, as a faithful witness of Jesus, would say something similar? Additionally, didn't Jesus change the customs of Moses? Not the law, but the customs and the traditions, Sabbath customs, dietary customs, cleaning customs. And so my question, and this is the theological hiccup, is why are they called false witnesses? What do they bear false witness of? With the time that I have remaining, I'm going to attempt to answer that all-important question. Like I said earlier, I'm going to do that by offering three implications, three takeaways from this text that, as I said, I believe are all-important. They're the big rocks we're to see in this, in this passage. Here's the first. First implication that this text brings with it. Jesus is the example that we are to follow. Clearly implied in our text. Now, I don't think that's a revolutionary point. um, And I I don't think it really answers the question that I pose, but it can't be ignored. I mean, this passage and next, next week's demands that we ask, why is the first martyr of the New Testament church, why does he strike such a resemblance to Jesus? 
Like, what is going on? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to write and record what he does? And as you will see next week, why is the longest message in the book of Acts Stephen's message? What are we to see? Well, that's first. I mean, just think about the comparisons between Stephen and Jesus. Stephen is described as full of power and wisdom and grace and the Spirit as Jesus was. And he performs wonders and signs like Jesus did. And he is accused of teaching what Jesus taught. The crowds turned on him like they turned on Jesus. And he was brought before the Sanhedrin as Jesus was. And false witnesses spoke against him as they did with Jesus. He wasn't killed on a cross like Jesus, but he was killed. And at his killing, like Jesus, he prayed for his killers. Is that all just a coincidence? No one thinks that. This is purposeful. And I, I think it's meant to remind us that the student is not greater than the teacher. I mean, just notice what Peter writes in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let, let me read that again. If when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Like easy to read, Right? Peter goes on, for to this you have been called. What, what Peter? What have, been, what have I been called to? Doing good and enduring evil because of it. That's what you've been called to. You've been called to this. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because, here it is, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Is Jesus more than an example? Well, of course he is, much more. He is our king, he's our Lord, he's our savior, he is God. But he is nothing less than an example. And Stephen's life and his death serve as a reminder of that. But the implication is for us as well. The student is not greater than the teacher. For to this you have been called. Second implication. The law is a shadow. Jesus is the reality. Uh, We know what a shadow is. I'm casting a shadow literally as I speak. It's a great visual aid this morning. If I'm meeting you outside somewhere, we're going to go hang out, have a coffee or what have you, and you're on the sidewalk and I'm walking towards you and the sun's behind me, my shadow will get to you before I do. You'll see the shadow. Shadow will approach you, get to you, and then I'll arrive. When I arrive, it would be really weird if you were more enamored with the shadow. That would hurt my feelings, right? If you're looking at the ground, I can't get enough of the shadow. I'm here. The reality is here. The substance, a lot of substance, is here. What's going on? In our text is the 
the opposition to Stephen were more enamored with the shadow. And it's here where we begin seeing why they were called false witnesses. See, I don't think they were saying things that Jesus and Stephen never said, but they were misconstruing them. They were repackaging them. Misunderstanding them. Again, I think they had become enamored with the shadow of the law and were missing the one it pointed, pointed ahead to. Psalm 19 says this about the law of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, if you were to ask Jesus and Stephen, do you agree with that? They would have said yes and amen to that. They would have never blasphemed the law. They would have agreed with what the psalmist pens here. Jesus didn't come to blaspheme the law. He didn't even come to abolish the law. But he did come to fulfill it. The law is a, is a shadow. Jesus is the reality. He came to accomplish by the perfect keeping of the law, what we couldn't. Weakened as we are in the flesh, as Paul writes in Romans 8. See, the law isn't bad. We are. Weak as we are in the flesh. But the keeping of it is still a requirement. And the only hope we have is for someone to keep it for us. And he did. Perfectly. And he gave it to us. We're not just mere forgiven people as Christians. We are the righteousness of God as Christians. He amputated our sin and he imputed his righteousness. And he gave it to us. We are the righteousness of God because of Christ. His perfect keeping of the law in exchange for our imperfection. Pretty good deal. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. Third implication. The destruction of the temple speaks about more than just Jesus' death. Um, when, when, When Jesus and Stephen are accused of speaking against the temple and its destruction, the people concluded that Jesus was just talking about the physical destruction of the temple. That's why they got fired up about it. Did Jesus ever talk about the physical destruction of the temple? Well, he did, actually. In Matthew chapter 24, uh, Jesus left the temple, was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly. I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Did that happen? History majors? Yeah, it happened in AD 70. The destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, it remains that way still. But he also talked about the destruction of the temple in spiritual terms too. Another verse, this time from John 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? 
But he was speaking about the temple of his body. As I kind of make a turn for home in this message, let me sort of wrap things up this way. And I want us to see this and taste this because it's precious, all important. When Jesus and Stephen, as his faithful witness, spoke against the temple, they weren't just simply speaking against the building, but what it represented. The things that were a part of the temple. Like what? What's a part of the temple? Well, their whole worship system was a part of the temple. The place of sacrifice, right? The place of the Holy of Holies. The place of the high priest. The place of the mercy seat. The place of God's presence. This was God's earthly home. The place of the veil. The place of blood. And so Jesus saying that the temple would be destroyed and raised three days later was him saying that he was going to destroy the temple and all that it represented and replace it with himself. The temple would go down with Jesus and only Jesus would come up. He would be the sacrifice. No no longer bulls and goats. He would be the sacrifice. He would be the invitation. He would be the high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. He would be the veil that was torn so that we could have access to the Holy of Holies. He would be the mercy seat. He would be the blood that was shed and poured on the seat of mercy. He would be all of that. He would be the place where people meet God. Which is why John writes in his vision of the new Jerusalem, and I saw no temple in the city. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and and the Lamb. But sadly, they preferred the building over the one it pointed to. Enamored with the shadow. And so they killed him. And they'll kill Stephen too. Our passage closes, and I'll close with this in verse 15. We read, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What does that mean? I mean, a face like an angel. Like chubby? Chubby cherub? cherub, We always see. No. It means it's bright and shiny like the sun. Like Moses' face in Exodus 34. Like Jesus' face as described in Revelation 1, which leaves us as we close with one final irony, isn't it? Did it show up again here? Stephen's face. The one who was accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses, his face shined like Moses did. I wonder, I wonder what they were thinking when they're gazing at it. Let me pray for us as we close. Uh, Jesus, you make it very, very clear that we're not to be mere hearers of the word, but doers. And it's those who hear your words and build our life upon them that build their life upon the rock. And so we've heard by 
by way of this text today, the inspired words of Luke, we've heard from you today. And so now we respond in in worship, in in obedience, uh, running from things, running to things, running from things you called us to run from and turning to you. I pray for those here. I don't know this group well. I don't know everybody here, but I would think that there's probably some people here asking questions about the Christian faith. I I pray that they would ask sincere questions and that as they seek you, they would find you. That any objections they have would be filtered through a, a recognition that they're not God, you are. And so there are things that we'll be challenged with, but you call us to to obedience and faith, and in that we find joy. Joy always follows obedience. Always. So I pray for those that are seeking and searching. I pray for those who are perhaps living in in doubt, uh, perhaps living in in an unhealthy fear, uh, not walking walking in a a manner worthy of the gospel. I, I pray for them. I pray for those who right now who are doing good and suffering. Uh, Strengthen them, I pray, by way of your spirit. Encourage them by way of the body today, uh, that the body would come alongside of them, encouraging them with prayer and support, uh, arm around the shoulder. Uh, I also pray, Father, that, uh, well, I really thank you. I thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, I thank you for coming and doing what we couldn't, living a perfect life and giving it to us dying a death in in our place and conquering the grave, rising from it, ascending to the right hand of the Father and ruling now. We worship a living Savior. So I thank you for this time. Encourage us by way of your word as we go from here and as we respond in worship now. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.